So, uh, we are in the middle of the ninth of the uh, of the principles. This is the one which the Rambam calls Bittel, or what we would say in English is the uh, immutability of Torah. So, where we left off last week, um, we talked about how there is an approach which some of the commentators have, which says that uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself cannot even change the Torah. It's not something that he has the option to do and he's just choosing not to do. He's, in a sense, exercising his Bechira not to do. But this is, in fact, something which HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself cannot do. And the explanation that we gave for that idea, for that position, is the notion that the Torah really represents God's essence uh, in, in, uh, in words. Kiviyacho. Obviously, you're not going to be able, words are, are finite and they have finite meanings to them and you're not going to be able to go ahead and um, uh, confine God to the words of the Torah either, but they represent the essence of God himself. And therefore, like we said in the earlier principles, just like God himself is not changing, there's nothing, there's no way that God could change because once you're, you're uh, Hashem is a perfect being. So there can't be any change which occurs. So by the same token, the Torah, which represents the, um, the, uh, the essence of God in words, is also something which is not possible to change. So that is uh, the, uh, the one explanation, one approach which we had last week. Now we said that there are those who disagree with the, the, the Rambam, and they feel that theoretically... God could go ahead and change the Torah if he so chooses. If God were to go ahead and make that executive decision in Shemaim somewhere and say, you know what, I think after a pandemic, it's a good time to have a second revelation or something along those, uh, those lines, where he's going to go ahead and uh, after this, uh, this major change, he's going to go ahead and uh, he wants to do so. So theoretically, he could do so. And part of the, uh, the explanation that the, these uh, commentators give for this approach is similar to what we talked about last week in the sense that just like uh, the, the mitzvah, which, or the mitzvos, which Avram and Sarah had, were not the same mitzvahs as, or they were, they were, but they, it, it grew in time as you went from Avram and Sarah to Yitzhak and Rivka to Yaakov and Rachel and Leah, it grew over time as, uh, as history was unfolding. And even the Jewish people themselves, they didn't get all of the mitzvahs at Har Sinai. We know that in between the Exodus and, uh, and the actual event at Har Sinai, in the middle of, uh, the, of those 49 days, by Mara, HaKadosh Baruch also went ahead and gave a number of mitzvahs, gave a handful, I should say, a number. He gave a handful of mitzvahs to Klai Yisrael at that time also. So even the Jewish people ultimately would receive the Torah, there was a sense of the unfolding of, uh, of revelation of the, uh, the mitzvahs. So being that there's something which, for which we have precedent for in Jewish history. So therefore, there's no reason to say that if God wanted, he cannot go ahead and do so again. And it could just be that until now, there hasn't been a compelling reason for God to reveal more. But theoretically, if he wanted to, he could go ahead and he could, he, he could do so. But... Um, um, but uh, if God were to go ahead and do so, so like Rav Yosef Albo, if you remember from the, uh, the introduction to the 13 principles, so he wrote somewhat of a critique of the 13 principles, 
and he broke it down using different terminology about shirashim and anafim and different ways of, of, of expressing it, different ways of categorizing and expressing the same basic ideas of the, of the principles. But he says that even if you adopt the, uh, the position that God could theoretically uh, have a second revelation where he goes ahead and gives us more mitzvahs or something along those lines. So in order for us to believe the prophet who would come along and tell us that there is going, there is or was or is taking place a second revelation. So there are two necessary prerequisite for that prophet, for that Navi to go ahead and meet in order to be able to, uh, to accomplish that. And the first thing is, is that the new Navi has to be greater in prophecy than the Navi who gave us, who, who uh, gave us the, uh, or was part of the initial revelation. In other words, this new Navi who would come along and give us a, a, a new revelation has to be greater than Moshe Rabbeinu. That's criteria number one. That's, by, that's a hurdle number one, which would have to be uh, overcome. And then point number two is that, as we talked about also, when we talked about Moshe Rabbeinu and his prophecy in the truth of the Torah, and that is that the evidence establishing the credentials of this second Navi, who's going to go ahead and uh, be the leader at the time of the second revelation, he has to provide evidence of his prophecy and of this revelation, which is going to be on par as the revelation, as the, uh, the, the evidence which was present when we received the Torah at Harsinai. So um, if you think just uh, you know, briefly about these two prerequisites that would be necessary in order to be able to have a second revelation, the likelihood of a second revelation actually taking place is between zero and less than that. Because the Torah itself tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu is the greatest of all Nevi'im who ever lived. Talked about that a couple of principles ago. So if we already know from the Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu is the greatest Navi that ever lived, that means that there can't be another one which is as great or greater than him. That is point number one. And then, uh, which makes it un- uh, unlikely. And um, the, uh, the evidence that we had of Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, stature as the one who is going to re- uh, be the conduit for the revelation to share with us the Torah. So that was something which was experienced, as we know, by the three million people who were present at Har Sinai, including the men, women, and children, and o- all of the people who are there. So in order for this new theoretical Navi to come along and provide us with a second uh, revelation. So you need another event of 3 million people present who are there, who will be able to subsequently testify and say, yes, we were part of this second revelation and this was the, uh, the manifestation of God's presence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the likelihood of this happening is something which is minuscule, um, uh, minuscule to, to say the least. But what we have is, a theoretical disagreement between commentators as to whether or not, in theory, could God update revelation? Could he have another revelation where he reveals more? Or is it something which is not possible because once the Torah was given formally, so that represents the totality of Hashem uh, of Hashem in words, and therefore there's nothing left to be said, nothing, uh, uh, n- nothing more could be added uh, to that, 
as we as we talked about at the end last week, the idea behind the prohibition of adding to or subtracting from the Torah. So although there's theoretically a machlokus about whether it could happen, in practical terms, uh, nobody is expecting that there's going to be a second revelation at all. So don't hold your breath and wait for, uh, you know, that hetter for a double bacon cheeseburger anytime soon. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not coming. Okay. Now, with all of this said, so there are, there's a certain uh, point that the Rambam makes elsewhere, which suddenly becomes very troubling. So our whole, the whole point of this principle, of this ninth principle, is the immutability of Torah, the fact that the Torah can change. But if you look, there's a very famous Rambam at the end of Hilchos Purim, where he goes ahead and states that in the future, the future era, the time of Mashiach or the time of Tchias Samesim, one of those two eras, one of these are those two future eras of redemption. But the Rambam says that in the future, all of Nach will become bottle or nullified, except for Megillus Esther. So there's going to be this, some future point where we're going to go from Tanakh to Tas, I guess. There'll be Torah and Esther, something, uh, or Ta, something along those, uh, the, those lines, that that's all we're going to be left with. So Nevi'im Rishonim and Nevi'im Achronim and the bulk of Ksuvim are all going to be bottle. That's the term that the, the Rambam uses, it's going to be bottle. And all we'll have is Torah and Megillus Esther. Now, this is shocking, because if, it, if this was somebody else, we would just say this machlogus. The Ramam says immutability of Torah is an essential principle and nothing could ever change. And the Rambam holds that uh, you can come along, and you, or if somebody else has said it, that the, uh, in the future, there's going to be all or most of Tanakh is going to go bottle, is going to become nullified. And the only thing which is going to remain is Torah and Megillus Esther. But they're both from the same author. They're both from the Rambam himself. So we can't easily dismiss it and just say it's a machlokas about it when both ideas come from the same author. Now, the Ravid happens to disagree with the Rambam. Even forget, now put, it, put aside the, the inconsistency in the Rambam for a moment, but just the notion that parts of, uh, of Tanakh are going to become bottle is a shocking assertion in and of itself. And the Ravid, in fact, he strongly disagrees with the Rambam and he says that the, the Medrash, which the Rambam is using as the source for his statement, for his declaration, he's really misunderstanding it. He's misunderstanding that Medrash. And as a result of that, he's saying this absurd thing that, that Nach is, going to, uh, is essentially going to become bottle in the, the future, when in reality, that's not, uh, that, that's not true at, at all. The Ravid says that all the Medrash means is that as opposed to nowadays where Shabbos morning, we read a Haftorah. So we have public readings of sections of Nevi'im. And on various Shemim we may read sections of, from Ksuvim. We read the Megillahs, for example, at various times during the year. So in contrast to nowadays, where we have public readings of Nevi'im and Ksuvim, in the future, we will only read, we'll skip Haftorah, and we will only have Kriya Satora itself, and on Purim, we will have the reading of Megillus Esther. And there won't be public readings of any of the other works from, uh, from the Vim and Suvim. And the Ravid says that's all that the Medrash means, and you shouldn't take it to this, uh, what he would consider to be this absurd conclusion, and say that we're actually going to go ahead and excise from our Tanakh those last sections of the Nevi'im and the Ksuvim, 
he finds that to be completely uh, untenable for the very reason that, like we were talking about that, there's the immutability of Torah. The immutability of Torah says that Torah is not going to change. So if Torah is not going to change, that means even in the future era, we're not going to go ahead and start deleting various Sfarim, which were part of our sacred Tanakh, all of these, uh, all these generations. So these two aspects, this, uh, the, the number one, how do we make sense in the first place of the Rambam statement that Nach is going to go bottle in the future? And then to reconcile the inconsistency between the Rambam's principle of the immutability of Torah on the one hand, and then on the other hand, this idea that, uh, that, uh, that the Nevi'im, are, uh, Nevi'im and Ksuvim are going to go bottle. So this is something which has um, uh, uh, piqued the interest of commentators for generations and generations and generations to go ahead and, and, and reconcile. Now, the Rashba, so uh, he also addresses this issue, and he actually presents us with uh, another uh, difficult source to understand, another element of this, which is a difficult source to understand. And he says that there's a, a related medrash, which says that in the future, all of the Yom Tovim are also going to become batal. The Yom Tovim themselves are going to be annulled. And in the future, the seemingly that same future era, the only Yom Tovim which will be observed are Yom Kippur and Purim, both of those Kippurim, uh, Yom Tovim. So Yom Kippur and Purim will survive, and the other Yom Tovim will also become, become bottle. Now, obviously, this Medrash takes the question about the immutability of Torah to a completely different level, because uh, we could go ahead and uh, one solution, which I'm sure if I had uh, uh, posed it to the floor, somebody would have come along and said that, that maybe somebody would say, listen, the Ramam's principle of the immutability of Torah should be taken literally. Torah itself is immutable. Nevi'im and Suvim, they're part of Tanakh, but they're not literally Torah. They're something which came, they weren't part of that original revelation which took place at Har Sinai. At Har Sinai, they did not learn about Yeshua, Shoftim, Shmuel, Malachim, Yeshai, Yechezkel, Yirmiya, Treyasar, all of those things. That wasn't part of the original Torah which was given at Har Sinai. And therefore, maybe we could say that the immutability of Torah principle is limited to Torah itself. And therefore, the Rambam would be in the clear by saying that Nevi'im and Ksuvim will go bottle because they're not really subject to this principle, and that would be a way to reconcile that. Okay, you could, you could argue such, a, such an approach to be able to reconcile these, uh, the, the Rambam over here. But the Rashba has a medrash which says the Yamim Tovim, which are in the Torah, are also going to be bottle. How can you get rid of Sukkot? Sukkot is clearly stated in the Torah. How are you going to get rid of Shavuos? How are you going to get rid of Rosh Hashanah? All of those are Yom and Tovim, which are clearly stated in the Torah, and they cannot be dismissed as something which is just Nevim and Ksuvim, um, when these are something which come from the Torah itself. So now this, as I said, this brings the question to a whole new level, because this clearly is taking something which is a Daraisa and saying that at some point in the future, it's no longer going to be practiced. So the Rashba, so he explains that these various sources, it's a Medrash and it's a Yushami. So what these sources really mean is that, um, uh, that uh, the, um, 
if over the course of history, as a, as a, as a, as we move forward in history, if there will be uh, circumstances where we are in exile, i.e., nowadays, and as a result of our sins, we're not going to be able to celebrate a particular yontif. Their circumstances of our lives, or the circumstance of the life of the Jewish people, will be such that celebrating Yom Tovim is not really going to be an option. So, nonetheless, Yom Kippur and Purim are always going to be celebrated. So it's not, the Rashba says, that we, the Anshek Nesagdola, we Chazal, we, uh, the Jewish people, are going to formally go ahead and revise the calendar. Somebody will make a, a call to Google and say, okay, on your Hebrew cal, go ahead and take out from now on Sukkot and Shavuot and just take them off of your, uh, your calendar. So it's not if the Jewish people are going to do that, but there may be times in history like inquisitions and whatnot and Holocaust where people don't have the option to celebrate various Yom Tovim, but Yom Kippur and Purim are always going to be uh, celebrated. Now, I, I can't say historically whether in times when they weren't celebrating various Yom Tovim, whether we have evidence to say that on a year, every year that the, we have celebrated uh, Yom Kippur and Purim, Maybe yes, maybe no. I, I wouldn't be able to comment about that one way or the other. But it does bring to light an interesting idea, which was a, a similar idea, which was made by the Piyasetzna Rebbe. Uh, the Piyasetzna Rebbe, if you, if you remember, with Klonimus Kamish uh, Shapiro. So he wrote um, many, uh, many great works. Uh, he was a master uh, educator before World War II, before the Holocaust. He um, ended up dying in the Warsaw Ghetto. He spent a number of years in the, in the Warsaw Ghetto teaching and, uh, and, and preaching while he, uh, while he was there. And he managed to go ahead and he had a number of written works, which he had put together, three different uh, works, which he had put together for his students in advance of the war. And then during the war itself, one of the things which he did was he gave drushas and he recorded those. And those were named Esh Kodesh, the Holy Fire. Weinberger in uh, in Woodmere, so is the uh, you know named the shul after uh, 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 after the Piasetsa. So uh, so the, the 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 what's uh, what's unique about the the drushas that you find in the Eish Kodesh is he wasn't just stam giving drushas on a Shabbos morning. Some of us dream about uh, for a while, but he wasn't stam giving drushas. He was giving drushas to people who were in the Warsaw Ghetto. And obviously, the people in the Warsaw Ghetto needed a tremendous amount of chizuk because of the circumstance in which they found themselves in, with death and illness and suffering and torture surrounding them everywhere that they went every day of, the, uh, of, of their existence there. So as a, as a, a great Hasidic Rebbe, so his, he felt it was his responsibility to go ahead and give chizuk to those people who were there who were listening. So what he did, so amongst the things which, which he talked about, so, um, uh, so he mentioned the, uh, or the, uh, the most difficult day of the year would be trying to give chizuk to his tzibur as Purim rolls in. Because how do you celebrate Purim in the Warsaw Ghetto? Now, obviously, you may be able to, you know, they, they, they barely had food on a, on, on a regular basis, let alone to go ahead and make a special suda or anything like that. I don't think anybody was in the mood for, uh, for joy and celebration or anything of that, of, of that sort. So how exactly do you go ahead and motivate a Seabor that is in the, uh, the Warsaw Ghetto? 
So his drasha was, he pointed out the, uh, the connection which we know, made by the Arizal, drawing a parallel between Purim and Yom Kippurim. That Yom Kippur is the day Kippurim. It's the day similar to Purim. So those days are similar to one another. And he says, he points out that Chazal tell us, we're, in, uh, we're holding there in Dafyomi, now it'll be the end of Masechta, but we're holding here in, the, in, the, in Dafyomi, in Masechas Yuma, where we're going to be told that Yom Kippur is a day of Kapara, at least according to the way we paskin, even for those people who don't do tshuva. Although normally the only way to get atonement is to repent, Yom Kippur has the capacity to atone even for those people who no, make no hachana, no preparation whatsoever in order to be able to position themselves for forgiveness. The very nature and character of the day is it's a day by which people achieve forgiveness. Regardless of your hachana, you could just sort of wake up after uh, being in a coma and you find yourself in Yom Kippur and you are going to achieve that level of, that level of atonement. So he says, on the other hand, Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkot, and Hanukkah, if you're unaware that, the, let's say you lose track of the calendar, and you completely forget that it's Hanukkah. So did you actually experience Hanukkah if you didn't do anything related to Hanukkah? You thought you were in the middle of uh, Shvat, and it turns out that it was really Kislev. So just because it actually was Hanukkah, it was, it was, uh, it was Kislev, rather than Shvat, if you didn't know that, you get nothing out of the day whatsoever. There's nothing to experience if you don't if you don't participate in the day. If you don't know that it's Pesach, so you're not going to be uh, if a person's uh, in a coma for Rachman uh, al on Pesach, so you don't get any of the Pesach benefits just because the calendar hit those days. You have to be part of it. You have to play to pay, or you have to play to uh, to uh, to be able to uh, to gain from the day. But Yom Kippur is unique. Yom Kippur is going to provide atonement. Uh, uh, even for those people who don't prepare at all. If you remember, very often by Yizker on Yom Kippur, I mentioned the Medrash, which says that the reason why Yom Kippur, the word is in the plural, Yom Kippurim, in the plural, is because it provides atonement for the living as well as the deceased. So the deceased, obviously, they can't do tshuva at this point. They're not alive to be able to go through the motions of tshuva. But nonetheless, the very nature of the day is it provides atonement. And that is going to work even as far as those people who don't do anything. So therefore, says the Piyasetza, that Purim is also, by definition, a day of great joy. And even if a person doesn't make any preparations for that joy, to be able to experience that joy whatsoever, Nonetheless, the nature and the character of the day is a day of joy, and it is uh, and uh, the the uh, the circumstances of one's life are not going to be able to uh, to uh, to detract from that. So, perhaps what the Rashba meant in terms of what he said that historically that Yom Kippur and Purim will always be celebrated is this idea that the Piyasetzim had meant that Purim and Yom Kippur are days which provide the benefit of the day even without any preparation or, in a sense, any participation in the day whatsoever, without even doing any of the mitzvahs, nonetheless, the character is something which is there for, uh, for benefit. Okay, so that is the Rashba's approach with a little bit of the Piyasetzna's twist to it. Now, the Radvaz, the Radvaz is uh, late Rishonim, early Achronim, so he also addresses the issue and gives a number of, uh, of interesting approaches to this idea. And the first thing he says is 
that uh, a fascinating idea, and that is that when Mashiach comes in the time of the Messianic era, what's going to happen is, is that the Jewish people are going to return to the level that they were at at Harsina. So we know that the purpose of the, uh, the uh, one of the functions of the days between Pesach and Shavuos is to march up the ladder from the depth of Tuma that we were in when we left Mitzrayim and to be able to rise to the level of Kedusha and Tahara where, whereby we'll be worthy of receiving the Torah. So, and at the time that they received the Torah, so we were at this incredibly high level of, of, of spirituality. We were at a level, like, uh, like we talk about that, uh, a level which was akin to the level of, uh, of the Avos and the Mos, of our forefathers and our foremothers, who had the ability to be able, they were, they're, they're, were so purified in terms of their existence that they were able, and we talked about it a little bit last week, that they were able to discern the mitzvahs themselves just by exploring nature and exploring creation and things of, uh, uh, of that sort. So if we, at the time of, uh, of Mashiach, if we are going to go back to that level, which we were at, at the time of, uh, at the time of Ma'an Torah. So at the time of Ma'an Torah, all we needed was Torah. There was no Nevi'im and Ksuvim which were given to the Jewish people at that time. At the time of Ma'an Torah, it would have been perfectly sufficient for us to have just Breshis, Shmos, Vayikra, Bamidbar, Andavar. And there was no need to go ahead and have the additional Sfarim. Chazal say that the additional Sfarim are there to go ahead and to sort of iron out the Yetzirah, which is inside of us. So when we deviate from listening to Hashem, so then we need Nevi'im to come along and set us back on the straight and narrow to set us back on the correct path in order to be able to follow Hashem. But those farm are a, a, a necessity only during a time that we are sinning, but in a time that we are not sinning, like we were at at the time of Matan Torah, right before the Egel, but at the time of Matan Torah for those, uh, the, that, uh, that short period of time before we did the, uh, the, the sin of the Egel Azav, and what will be restored at the time of Mashiach is back to that pure, that purity of spirituality, where we, wouldn't, we won't need the words of Nevi'im to go ahead and set us back on the correct path of following Hashem, but it's something which we would go ahead and we would do automatically. And along these lines, the lines of this, uh, this Radvaz, so Reb Tzadok HaKohen, the famous uh, Baal Machshava, referred to as Reb Tzadok, so he says, he quotes a Gemara Nedarim, very famous Gemara Nedarim, which also is amongst these sources which people talk about in this particular principle, because it expresses a similar idea. And the Gemara Nedarim says that, that as far as the original plan was concerned, from a human perspective, from a, from a Klayusah perspective, all that was really necessary for the Jewish people was Torah and Sefer Yoshua. Sefer Yoshua was part of the plan, but the rest of Nevi'im and Ksuvim was not necessary. Why do we, we need the Torah because the Torah contains the mitzvahs. We needed Sefer Yeshua because Sefer Yeshua is the instructions of entering into the land and the division of the land amongst the Shvatim, which was an essential part of, it's not only the conquest of the land, but the settling of the land. 
So Sefer Yeshua, that, that was always part of the plan to have that. If you remember from the, the Gemara in Baba Vasa, for example, that when leaving Mitzrayim, so they already knew that they were going to be going into the land, and they already knew that the land was going to be divided amongst families. That's why Tzlafchad's daughters came along and said, hey, our father left Mitzrayim. He got one of those golden tickets, which means he's going to get a portion of the land of Israel. He's no longer around. Why should his golden ticket go to, uh, to waste? Why should it go somewhere else? Give us the rights of our father's golden ticket to be able to get uh, a portion of the land. So Torah and Sefer Yeshua were always part of the equation. And then the other uh, Sfarim were given, the, the, the Gemara's quote is, Levatel Rovkas, to nullify the abundance of anger. So as the Jewish people sin and God gets angry, so God doesn't want to remain angry at the Jewish people. So the Nevi'im come along and you read through, uh, you know, most of the Nevi'im, besides all of the battles between the various kings, but you read the Nevi'im themselves, their task was to try and set us back, set us straight and to try and get us to, uh, to repent and return back to, uh, to Hashem. So those lessons of Shmuel, say for Malachim, say for Treyasar, all those different Nevi'im, so those are necessary during times when we continue to sin. But when we enter into the era of Mashiach, and we're no longer going to, uh, to sin, so the rebuke which is present in those works, so those no longer are relevant. We don't need them anymore. And once we don't need them anymore, so it, uh, it's, uh, it's an old, uh, whatever it is, it's an old version of something that's, uh, you know, it's, it, it makes for good memories. Like when your mom cleans out her house and you go ahead and you get all those old pictures and old report cards. So it's interesting to look at, but it's no longer relevant as far as today is concerned. It's just uh, something which is, a, which is a memory. Now, what makes McGill's Esther unique is, and the reason why we said, the Rashman pointed out, that Megillus Esther is also going to survive, will also be around in the future, is because Megillus Esther is not written from Nevoah. It was Ruach HaKodesh the Gemara talks about, but it wasn't necessarily uh, Nevoah uh, per se. Because the Megillus is, is a letter that Mordechai and Esther wrote to Anshe Knesset Sagadola. And as we know, we talk about it every year, the underlying message of Megillus Esther and the whole Purim story was that it pulls the curtain, curtains back and allows us to see how HaKadosh Baruch Hu manipulates history in order to bring, uh, bring about his desired outcome. So there could be overt miracles, and we see lots of those in the Torah, overt, overt miracles which go ahead and violate laws of nature. Megillus Esther didn't have any of those things. As we know, there isn't, the, the, you don't even have the mention of God explicitly anywhere in Megillus Esther, because everything which God did, all the miracles which God did, he did from behind the scenes, working within laws of nature, in order to be able to bring about the, uh, the salvation. And as the story was unfolding, most people weren't even cognizant of the direction in which history was actually unfolding. They were still, while most people are still pointing their fingers at, at Mordechai and saying, this is your fault for antagonizing that Haman, and you're the cause of all this anti-Semitism, and you're the cause of the destruction of the Jewish people, which is about to take place. Everything is planned. They have the king's approval. They have armies which are ready to, to, uh, to go. They're just waiting for the, uh, for the date to arise. And all of this, Mordechai, is your fault. And as they're still pointing their finger and blaming Mordechai, 
Meanwhile, Mordechai had, uh, was able to arrange, together with Esther, the two of them together, were able to arrange the salvation of the Jewish people. They saw that everything which was happening was all part of God's plan. They didn't see it as his fault, as him being to blame for antagonizing uh, uh, Haman. They saw all of this as part of Hashem's uh, uh, plan. And they were able to piece together the 9, 10, 12 years of history, which is in the 10 Prakim of Megillus Esther. And they saw these, what other people saw as random, isolated historical events. And they saw that as one big tapestry, which is, which is formulating a single storyline together, which will bring the salvation of the, of the Jewish people. And that ability to see God as he's working behind the scenes, not when he's splitting a sea, and not when he's allowing you to see sounds and hear colors and stuff like that, which took place at Har Sinai, but to, uh, to be able to discern how Hashem is manipulating history and the people in history in order to uh, bring about the salvation of the Jewish people. So that's a lesson which is relevant not only in that specific instance, but it's always insightful to be aware of how God's hand was ever present in the course of Jewish history. We're like the, Jew we're like the rest of the nation in the Purim story that we don't see how these various events in history are strung together and how they're going to bring about a positive outcome. So we are, we live it literally in the moment. So nothing, I shouldn't say nothing, but often it seems like things are not going our way and things seem to make no sense whatsoever. And we rely on our bitachon that everything ultimately is, is good, but we will find out once again that everything was really all part of the plan. It was all God's doing. He was, God was manipulating things from behind the scenes uh, in order to bring about what ultimately will be the, uh, the, the, the final salvation. So that's something which is what Olam Haba is all about. Olam Haba in its core is being able to enjoy God's presence. What does it mean to be able to enjoy God's presence? What it means is, is we're going to be able to reflect upon the totality of Jewish history from day one all the way until whatever point it's going to be that, uh, that, the, the, that we're going to enter into that era of Olam Haba. And we will reflect backwards on all that. And we'll be able to see how every step along the way was all part of God's plan. Nothing was random. Nothing was accidental. Nothing ultimately was bad. Everything ultimately is going to be for, for the good. And since that's what Olam Haba is essentially about, so that's why Megillus Esther is going to be the one Sefer which we're going to take with us, which wasn't part of the original plan of Torah and Sefer Yeshua, but that's going to be a valuable book even in Olam Haba because it's going to help train us and train our minds to be able to gain deeper and deeper and deeper appreciation for what God has done over the course of Jewish history and that's something which, uh, which will have relevance as opposed to, uh, you know, Sefer Yechezkel or Sefer Yirmiyahu, which talks about the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. Once we enter into the era of Mashiach in the era of Olam Haba, we don't need to remember the fact that, uh, that the, the, uh, the Musr words, which the Nevi'im gave to try and set the people straight. That's not going to be relevant anymore because we'll already be straight. But the lessons of Megillah, that's something which is going to have uh, eternal relevance because it allows us to deepen and deepen our appreciation of all of those things which, which Hashem has done. So that's why uh, in the, the other, uh, along those lines, we could also say that other Yom Tovim, so they were, they primarily are there 
to um, drive home messages related to specific historical events. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is significant because that was a form, formulation of the, uh, of the Jewish people. In the time of the future, when we have the final redemption and our salvation will be even greater than it was at the time of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So like Chazal tell us in various Midrashim and whatnot, that uh, if you were, uh, you know, you were saved from, uh, I don't know, you were saved from a, a squirrel which jumped out at you and you felt real appreciation that the, that the squirrel didn't jump on you and give you rabies. So imagine how much more, once you are chased down by a bear and you're saved, so if you were able to outrun a bear, you're never going to tell that squirrel story again. You got a much better story to tell once you outran the bear. So once you get to that, so you don't even bother mentioning that. That just goes into the, uh, into the uh, I don't want to say the trash can of history, but it goes into the, uh, the, uh, the archives of history not to remain on your consciousness anymore because that pales in comparison to what, the, what takes place. So that was approach number one of the Radvaz. Now, the second uh, approach of the Radvaz, where he's addressing more specifically the Medrash, which we said talks about the Yom Tovim becoming nullified, which we found to be a crazy notion, an almost crazy notion, because the Yom Tovim are sourced, are traced back to the Torah itself. And if the Yom Tovim are traced back to the Torah itself, so how is it going to be possible for, the, for those Yom Tovim to become nullified that is a direct violation of this principle, which, uh, which is the immutability of the Torah. So how could that ever happen? So explains the Radvaz that clearly and obviously the Medrash doesn't mean that we're not going to celebrate Yom Tovim in the future. It's not as if it's as, as tempting as it may be to, uh, to think about, to dream about, that you won't have to go ahead and clean the house for Pesach and you won't have to go ahead and eat matzah at the Seder and all of those, uh, those things as much as it may be nice to, uh, to dream about. But the bottom line is, this principle tells us the immutability of the Torah is the Torah cannot change. And the mitzvahs, which the Torah instructs us, take a lulav and esrog on the first day of, uh, of Sukkot. Maybe we won't have to take it all seven days of Sukkot. But at least the first day of Sukkot is a daraisa. We're not going to be able to get around that, uh, that mitzvah. And we're not going to be able to get out of eating, uh, e- eating matzah either. Rather, the Radvaz says, that the intent of the Medrash is really a different point altogether. And that, uh, and that is that once we reach this stage, this era of Mashiach or Tchiasamesim or Olam Haba, whichever term we're going to use for this, uh, this era, but once we reach this era, so life in general will be an experience of tremendous, tremendous joy. Right now, the assumption is, certainly for for us Ashkenazim, it expresses itself in Chutzlarts uh, with Birkas Koanim, that we only duchen on Yantif, as we know. Why do we only duchen on Yantif? Is that really a good source for the fact that we don't duchen outside of Eretz Yisrael other than on Yantif? The best the Ramah could come up with to be able to rationalize why we do so is because duchening requires great joy. And while we're living in exile, we have all of the pressures of our lives so we, we have a hard time, the Kohanim have a hard time getting into that mindset of real joy in order to be able to, uh, to bless the people fully with that, uh, that, uh, that uh, simcha saleh, that, uh, that joy of the heart. But in the era of Mashiach, Chiasamesim, Olam Haba, whatever term we're going to use, so life in general is going to be one of great joy and peace of mind. 
because we will have that great clarity. The whole world will have the great clarity of not only God's existence, but the fact that God is running the world and everything is under his watchful and careful eyes. And therefore, so since every day will be experienced like a yantif, because there'll be such great joy and serenity and happiness in, in Simcha. So uh, Yontif is no longer going to feel like a special day. It's not a day that we're going to be looking forward to, that uh, this is a, a great time of, of celebration and joy, as opposed to the rest of the year, where we have the burdens and responsibilities and anxieties and stresses of, of daily life. Every day is going to be uh, joyous and in, in celebrated. And therefore, uh, all, that's all the Medrash means to say, is that not that we're not going to observe the Yom Tovin, but they won't be appreciated to the same degree as they are now, because every day is going to be greatly appreciated as a day of great joy and a great, uh, and great peace of mind. But, he says, what's unique about Purim is that even La'asid Lavo, even in this era of Mashiach, so Purim is always going to be a unique and special day. That's a day which, even if we're living in a time of great joy and great happiness and great peace of mind, nonetheless, Purim is always going to be appreciated for what, for what it is. Uh, because of the, uh, the, uh, the, the Jews will remember that contrast, that v'nahafachu, which is at the essence in the core of the day of Purim, how we were on the brink of destruction. We were just about uh, there, as we said. All the pieces were in place in order for the Jewish people to actually be annihilated and be uh, to be wiped off the face of the earth. And in just that split second, that one night that Achashverosh couldn't sleep, suddenly everything flips over on its head. And suddenly Mordechai is not getting hung on the gallows, but Haman's being hung on the on, on the gallows. And rather than killing the Jewish people, the Jewish people are killing their enemies. And that's something which is a universal story in the sense that even in the era of Mashiach, Olam Haba, that will be a story which is going to be appreciated. And being that that's a story which is going to be appreciated, so that's why that Yontif is going to be unique and will continue to be celebrated, and not only celebrated, but experienced as a day of great joy, even in the world of Olam Haba, which by definition is a time of great uh, joy and, uh, and peace of mind. So now, these are uh, potential answers. Uh, to explain the Rambam, to explain, number one, we said the contradiction between in the Rambams, the mutability of the Torah on the one hand, and yet he says that the, uh, that the various Sifrei uh, Tanakh uh, are no longer going to be relevant in the future. And then in general, the idea of how Yantif, uh, the Medrash and the Yushalmi, whatever the actual Pshad is, the Yom and Tovim are not going to be celebrated, are not going to be appreciated, are not going to be experienced in the same way, so these are various answers that the, that Mefarshim give, that commentators give, in order to be able to explain that. But there's one answer which I know to be true, one answer which we haven't touched upon yet, and this is the answer which is given by the Magid Mishnah. Magid Mishnah is one of the primary commentators on the on the page of the Rambam himself, and on this page where the Rambam makes these statements about Yom Tovim and Sifrei Tanakh going uh, becoming bottle, no longer being relevant, so. The Magamisha quotes both the Rambam as well as the dissenting opinion of the Ravid about whether this is going to happen, it's not going to happen, what exactly is going to uh, occur. And he, his conclusion, the Magamisha's conclusion is, is that when Mashiach comes, 
we'll find out who is right. So that means that there are certain things which we just don't know. We, we won't be able to tell until the time actually comes. So, uh, you know, for, the, for this one, normally we don't end the shir this way, but for this one, we're going to end that in Mirza Hashem, we should, uh, we should be zocha to be able to find out who is correct in this machlokas or how we're going to be able to reconcile the disagreement between the Rambam and the Ravid over here about what's going to happen to Tanakh La'asid Lavo, what's going to happen with the Yom Tovim La'asid Lavo, how all of that is going to, uh, is going to unfold. Teku. What? Teku. Teku. Yes, ex- exactly. Teku. Okay, so this is, um, okay, so this is, as we've talked about, this ends part two of the three parts of 13 principles. So we went through the first five dealing with God, the middle four dealing with prophecy and uh, revelation and things related to, uh, to, uh, to Nevuah. And now principles 10, 11, 12, and 13, the last four uh, revolve around the topic of schar and onish, reward and punishment. So Mirza Hashem, next week, we'll begin with, uh, with principle number 10. And there's uh, no class Thursday up. night. Yes, no class Thursday night. I will uh, be traveling on Thursday. So I'm not, uh, I don't think I'm going to make it in time to, uh, for class. So we will uh, meet again in Mirza Hashem on Tuesday next week.